You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the podcast episode each week where you control what we talk about here on the show. And so there's a lot of great stuff to get into today. So many good questions. Let's not waste any time and get right to it. First one today comes from Alex. Alex says, I'm listening to the Draft Dude Show where you and Kyle Krabs are grading the situation that each rookie quarterback is walking into. Thinking back to Josh Allen's rookie season, where would you have graded his situation with the Bills in those same metrics. So yes, this entire week on the Draft Dudes podcast, Kyle and I are working through each of the five first-round picks from the 2021 NFL Draft and grading the scenario they are entering into. And so we're grading six different categories, the coaching staff, the quarterback room, the offensive line, the run game, the pass catchers, and the defense, and grading each category on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 being a fail, 5 being it's perfect, and 3 being average, to go through each of these quarterbacks and really dig into the scenario that they're entering into. And as Kyle and I have continued to cover the NFL and learn more about what's happening in the league and what works and what doesn't work, we are more and more convinced that just as important as the player, right, the quarterback and the skills that they have – just as important to what they bring to the table as a player is the scenario around them. And you can really link so many busts or failed quarterbacks that were drafted in the first round and link that back to them not having the right stuff around them. And so we thought this was important to look at each of those categories for this rookie class and really identify where these teams are and what they have established for this quarterback. So going back to Josh Allen in 2018, entering the NFL as a rookie quarterback on the Buffalo Bills, uh, for coaching with it being Sean McDermott, Brian Dable as the offensive coordinator his first year with the team uh, after a year with Alabama and a bunch of different opportunities in the NFL, and then David Coley as his quarterback's coach. And David Coley, when he was the Bills quarterback's coach in 2018, that was the first time since... 1988 at Southwestern Louisiana that he was given an opportunity to be a quarterback's coach specifically. And now all of a sudden he's handed Josh Allen as his guy to develop. (laughs) He hasn't worked with a quarterback since 1988. So I didn't like that. Obviously, Sean McDermott as a defensive-minded coach, I don't think he really helps Josh Allen that much. I think from a leadership perspective and accountability and those types of things, yes. But in terms of playing the position. I don't actually know how much McDermott can help Allen. And then Dable, there's a lot to like with where he was at in his career and having worked with Tom Brady and and been around a lot of different quarterbacks and a lot of different schemes, I was pretty high on Dable. So I would grade that as a two and a half, slightly below average because, again, I don't think McDermott really helps Josh Allen that much. And David Coley as a quarterback's coach was very much an unknown to me. In the quarterback room, the Bills had... A.J. McCarron and Nate Peterman to go with Josh Allen. Nate Peterman, a second-year player after really struggling as a rookie. And then A.J. McCarron, who I think had started four NFL games to that point, 
those were the quarterbacks that Josh Allen entered the league with. That was A.J. McCarron was the bridge. He was the guy that was supposed to mentor Josh Allen. I think I think the Bills did Josh a major disservice with this, and I know injuries played into it, but by midseason, Matt Barkley and Derek Anderson were signed and um, really played an instrumental role in helping Josh Allen grow, and so much so that they extended Derek Anderson in the offseason and brought Matt Barkley back for a couple of seasons. So, But initially speaking, this was very, very poor. I gave it a one and a half. I mean, almost a fail, completely a fail here in my mind. The offensive line for Josh Allen as a rookie was left tackle Deion Dawkins, John Miller and Vlad Dukas at guard, Russell Bodine at center, and Jordan Mills at right tackle. That's awful. I mean, Deion Dawkins, a second-year player, Bodine, Ducasse, Mills have been perpetually struggling type players. And then John Miller, who, you know, has been an okay player, but he's a guard and, you know, he didn't necessarily win over the coaching staff right away with Sean McDermott and company in Buffalo. So I give this a one and a half. This was this was very much not helpful to Josh Allen's development and um, didn't set him up to succeed with that group in front of him. In terms of a run game, we've already established the bad offensive line. Then the running backs were pretty good. LaShawn McCoy and Chris Ivory. I like that pair of veterans in the backfield to go with Josh Allen. Those guys were were a perfectly good pair of running backs for Josh Allen. But a bad offensive line takes it from what I think is average to below average, so I give it a two and a half. Pass catchers, this is a joke. Zay Jones, Calvin Benjamin, Jeremy Curley, Andre Holmes and Kalen Clay at wide receiver, a declining Charles Clay at tight end, and then a pretty good pass catching back in LaShawn McCoy. So to me, LaShawn McCoy is somewhat of a redeeming factor in this conversation, but not much. I give it a one and a half. And then defense was kind of the bright spot. I give it a four. I mean, the Bills had really good talent on defense in 2018, and um, you had a great defensive-minded head coach in Sean McDermott, Leslie Frazier, a long-term outstanding defensive coordinator in the NFL. And so from the perspective of you would think that defensively that could carry the team and not put as much stress on the offense to have to score a lot, um, I, I thought that was a good piece of the pie that the Bills had ready for Josh Allen as a rookie. So in totality, that adds up to 13 and a half, which is not good. That's below average. An average score across the board would be 15. And so when you measure it up against the other quarterbacks that we've covered so far on Draft Dudes, I had Trevor Lawrence at 19.75, Trey Lance at 24, and Zach Wilson at 12. So it's better than what the Jets have brewing for Zach Wilson as a rookie, but still pretty bad collectively. And then we'll get to Justin Fields on Thursday and Mac Jones on Friday uh, if you want to keep track with that series over on Draft Dudes. But overall, not a great situation for Josh Allen as a rookie, but Brandon Bean changed things very quickly and, and things got a lot better in all of those areas. Offensive line, pass catchers, you know, even defense, having the right mix of quarterbacks in the room with him, uh, bringing in Ken Dorsey to be the quarterback's coach. I mean, they did a nice job of correcting all the mistakes that they made for his rookie season. The next one today comes from Adam who says, now that the Bills are Super Bowl contenders and should be for the next several years at least, what is a realistic Super Bowl matchup that you would like to see other than Tampa Bay, as I would assume 
Most Bills fans would love to see us beat Brady. Mine would be the Cowboys to make up for all the pain they caused me in the early 90s. I think it would be a great quarterback matchup and also a great storyline to have a rematch of those previous Super Bowls. So I think you're right. Like Tampa and Dallas are the most obvious to me, you know, be very redeeming for the Bills to beat either of them in the Super Bowl. I'll give you two other matchups that are interesting to me that I I would like. Uh, One of them is the Minnesota Vikings. You know, Minnesota didn't lose four consecutive Super Bowls, but they've lost four. They've been to four and they lost four. And so when you would have two franchises that I think have a pretty big history of heartbreak going toe-to-toe, knowing that someone's going to win the game, uh, and for you to be the one that erases, you know, all the heartbreak before they do, I think that'd be really, really fun. And then you add the additional layer of Stefan Diggs, and I'd like that quite a bit. The other team that comes to mind is the New York Giants. Obviously, the closest the Bills came to winning the Super Bowl was against the New York Giants, so there'd be some redeeming qualities there. But I'm not a big Daniel Jones fan, right? Like I, I, I admittedly am not high on him as an NFL quarterback. But when you think about the criticisms that Josh Allen faced early in his career, Daniel Jones faces a lot of that same stuff. And so for a quarterback that just has faced a lot of criticism, a lot of, you know, he's been part of so many different jokes at the position, to see him get it right would be really fun. Just like everyone's kind of had to take their medicine on Josh Allen and admit they were wrong. I'd love to see it happen with Daniel Jones because Daniel Jones is a good guy. You know, I covered him pretty closely at Duke and it's not his fault that he was the number seven pick in the draft, right? It's, it's it just, it wasn't, right? Um, but he's a player that I, I'm rooting for just because so many people are rooting against him. So for, for the Giants to get to the Super Bowl, Daniel Jones must have come along and played really, really well. And then obviously the redemptive factor of beating the Giants in the Super Bowl would be pretty cool. So after Tampa and Dallas, give me the Vikings and the Giants. Justin says, Joe, Outside of defensive tackle, mostly one tech being my biggest concern for the team, I think special teams is getting lost to some. We lost Andre Roberts, which I hate. We have a new punter and a new placeholder on field goals. Bean is added in the draft in free agents in F.A. Obata, Richard Wild Goose, Elijah Griffin, Damar Hamlin, Greg Rousseau, Carlos Basham. With these additions, it makes me think, who's making the roster? You got four-phase special teamer Daryl Johnson, but I don't see him making the roster over Obata. Saran Neal, an elite gunner, but they have added to this cornerback room. Tyler Medikavich, but the Bills added linebacker depth as this team keeps getting more talent, and I personally think Bean doesn't like the thought of cutting a draft pick. I'm worried some of these special teams' aces will get cut just because they don't contribute much in their respective groups. I personally think Neal, Medikavich, and Johnson make most of the special teams' plays. It seems like every game I watched last year, those three were always tackling the returning man or right there. If the Bills lose these guys, special teams could really take a hit. Who do you think will be on the roster for special teams contributions come regular season? And who do you want to see on this roster for these reasons? So I think you make some fair points. Now, if there's anything that I could do to give you some comfort, it's to remind you that the Bills prioritize special teams. We've seen them roster players year in and year out, that don't help on offense or defense and our liabilities on offense and defense, like Tyler Medikavich, like Julian Stanford, like Deion Lacey, like Sonoris Perry, like Taiwan Jones. 
but keep them around for special teams. So I don't think that's going to change. I think that's a core philosophy that the Bills believe in. And two of the players you mentioned, Saran Neal and Tyler Medikavich, I think they're both stick, both sticking around. I mean, Medikavich restructured his deal. I think that pretty much locks him into the team this year. And then Saran Neal, like you said, he's a top-tier gunner, and that's an important thing. I don't see the Bills saying goodbye to him, even with some of the young players they've brought in at corner, right, like in that same position group. So when you look at the Bills' nine leading special teams players from last year in terms of snaps played, and I took out a couple of players just because that they were on the field goal kick team or the field goal block team, and they wound up having way too many snaps that don't really factor in. I'm talking you know, kickoff, kick return, punt, punt return. The top nine players in terms of snaps played on special teams, Tyler Medikavich, Saran Neal, Jaquan Johnson, Daryl Johnson, Andre Smith, Taiwan Jones, Dean Marlowe, Reggie Gilliam, and Tyrell Dotson. I think Matikavich, Neal, and Jaquan Johnson are absolutely back. Those are your top three guys. Daryl Johnson, I do have a concern that he makes his team over Obata. Maybe both of those players don't make the team. Between Tyrell Dotson and Andre Smith, I think at least one of them makes the team. And I think Taiwan Jones is back. And I think there's a decent chance Reggie Gilliam's back. So between a good amount of those players returning and the Bills prioritizing it, I think that piece of the puzzle should be okay. Now, the return game, the punting situation, those are very much concerns to me. And I don't feel good about Matt Hawk, and I don't feel good about what the Bills have as options to replace Andre Roberts. So collectively, I am concerned about the special teams, but probably less in the department of covering kicks and punts, maybe to the degree that you are. John says, I was curious to hear your pre-draft thoughts on Ed Oliver, so went back and listened to a pre-2019 draft podcast where you rated your top nine picks that you'd like to see the Bills take if they were available in order. Quarterbacks and Devin White weren't allowed on the list. I was impressed with your takes. You had Quinnen Williams, Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, Ed Oliver, and TJ Hawkinson as your top five wishes for the Bills if they were available at nine. Then you went off the grid and went with Brian Burns at six, DK Metcalf at seven, Noah Fant at eight, and Juwan Taylor at nine. You did note you didn't want the Bills to pick an offensive lineman at nine and seemed locked in on wanting either a defensive end, a three-technique defensive tackle, or one of those top-tier tight ends. You seem to be adverse to the Bills drafting Montez Sweat, Rashawn Gary, or Jonah Williams. Williams at this point seems to be the right call. In hindsight, if you could redo your top nine picks for the Bills, who would they be and what order would you take them in? All right, so this is fun, and and John's got a couple of follow-ups that I'll get to as well. But again, with hindsight, knowing what I know today, what would be my order of players I would want the Bills to draft at number nine in the 2019 NFL Draft? Nothing's changed at the top. Number one, Quinton Williams. Number two, Nick Bosa. Now things change a little bit. Three, Jeffrey Simmons. Four, Brian Burns. Five, DK Metcalf. Six, A.J. Brown. Seven, Dexter Lawrence. Eight, Ed Oliver. Nine, TJ Hawkinson. The next question that John has is, would you take Metcalf or A.J. Brown if that meant the Diggs trade never happens last year? My answer to that is no. You know, I, I would feel good about Metcalf or Brown, and I like those players a lot. I mean, I like them a ton. You guys know how much I love Metcalf specifically. 
But Diggs is absolutely the right player, right? Like he meshes with Josh Allen in so many ways and on so many levels that I wouldn't want to not have him. So I think it's a fair item to bring up. It's a good question, but I'd rather have Diggs. The next question from John is, has your view on drafting tight ends in the first round shifted since then? I would say no. I mean, I am of the belief that if you pick a tight end in the first round, they need to be special talents like a TJ Hawkinson or a Noah Fant or a Kyle Pitts. But I'm not adverse to tight ends in the first round. They just need to be you know, special talents. He also says, uh, it must feel good to be vindicated on being so high on Brian Burns and DK Metcalf when most weren't pounding the table for them like you were. Yes, it does. It does feel good because whether it was Brian Burns and people not wanting him simply because he came from Florida State and thinking he was just going to be the next Everett Brown or Jamal Reynolds, which were terrible takes to begin with, or DK Metcalf not being a favorite of people because he had a bad three-cone drill and they were mad that he didn't run routes like Antonio Brown and didn't think he could be productive in the NFL. You know, kind of being short-sighted in my mind to understanding how he can win and what he does bring to the table and how difficult that is to defend. So yes, those two players being what they are to this point in the NFL and really on the verge of stardom, I'd argue DK's there. Brian Burns is a budding star. Yeah, I do feel really good about where I was on those players and how much criticism I took for those takes. And then uh, the last thing that John said is, is Ed Oliver where you expected him to be at this point in his career? I would say that as a pass rusher, I think he is. I certainly have thought he would make more plays against the run by shooting gaps. And as a rookie, I think he was a fine run defender. But last year, he he didn't get as many chances to be a penetration-style player, and that hurt his ability to make an impact against the run. So I want him to finish more this year at the quarterback, but his pressure rates are really, really good. And I think he can be a better penetration-style run defender, which I hope to show up more in 2020. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online and your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code Locked On. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. The next one today comes from Tim. Tim says, I keep looking at John Brown highlights. The guy was electric at times during Josh Allen's last two seasons. Remembering when we ran the same wide receiver screen pass like five times successfully in 2019? I do. I understand he was hurt often in 2020, and that overshadowed his season. However, I remember early on when John Brown seemed essential to the offense, and the offense that did burn out a little, at least during the playoffs last year. Being a pass-first team, what can Sanders do for us in his absence? What will make this Bills pass offense different than last year, assuming Sanders stays healthy? So for me, where Sanders really can elevate the pass offense pass offense and do things that John Brown didn't do as well. It's as an intermediate route runner. 
You know, before John Brown got to Buffalo, he was billed as a deep threat only, right? Send him down the field in a straight line, throw it up, he'll go settle under the football. And in Buffalo, he became a more complete receiver that can win at all levels of the field. Well, this is different. This isn't where a guy that's in his late 20s comes over to Buffalo and gets a chance to show what he can do as an intermediate route runner. This is a guy that's been doing it for a long time in the NFL. So I think right off the bat, you get a more consistent and more established intermediate depth route runner. He's established in that area, and that's where Josh Allen wins as a thrower, right? He's got good deep accuracy based on what we saw last year. He can get the ball out quick, but where Josh really makes his hay is in that 10 to 15-yard range, and that's where Emmanuel Sanders knows how to get open. So I think that is going to be a major asset to this passing offense. And then also the ability to stay on the field. You know, Sanders may miss a few games this year, but John Brown's kind of battled injuries for a while. And last year he caught 33 passes and played like 47% of the offensive snaps. And a lot of those he tried to play hurt. So Sanders' ability to stay on the field and allow the Bills' offense to be what it wants to be because the players are available I think that's going to be another added benefit to what Sanders can bring to the offense. Jared says, just wondering if you think there will be less underclassmen declaring for the draft now that most players can earn money while in school. Yes, Jared, I think that is a really valid point. Um, The new NIL laws that allow players to make money off their name, image, and likeness is giving these collegiate athletes opportunities to make money. In fact, Nick Saban, head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, said that his quarterback, Bryce Young, has already closed in on nearly a million dollars worth of endorsement deals. And I know that's an extreme example. We're talking about the quarterback for one of the highest profile programs in college football. But the reality is, if these players can make some money, there's less urgency for them to declare simply because of money. I mean, a lot of these players come out of rough situations where they want to strike when they can to get to the NFL and make some money to help their family and get out of situations that have been hard for them and people they love. And so now that they can make a few bucks in college, and when I say a few bucks, potentially a lot, right? I mean, there's some big-time money for these guys to make that puts less urgency on them to – go to the NFL. And I hope this proves to be the case because every year for a long time now, we see that at least 30% of the underclassmen that declare for the NFL draft don't get drafted. And it's pretty sad. So I'm hopeful that this will keep players in school for longer, allow them to develop more, allow them to be more ready for the NFL, and less of those decisions where guys are just hoping to make some money to help their families, and I understand why they do it, but hopefully it can take away some of that urgency and allow them to make some money while they're in school, and that leads to less underclassmen. So I do think you're onto something, and I hope it proves to be the case. Kyle says, what are your thoughts on the possibility of the Bills running more 01 personnel this year, maybe 5 to 7% of the plays? It isn't something that we've really seen them run before. I'm in on the idea of Diggs, Sanders, Beasley, and Davis or McKenzie on the field with Dawson Knox 
if he takes a step forward. It seems like there would have to be a mismatch guy that they could go to. They could move the tight end into the backfield for blitz pickup or motion McKinsey to use him as a run jet sweep threat. I think it would be fun to watch, and I think we are about to see Dable get really creative this year. Kyle, I love it. I love the idea. You go empty with a tight end on the field, four wide receivers. Again, you mentioned you can roll Knox back into the backfield and use him as a blocker if needed. But I love the idea that this gives you more options. It's better spacing. You can play the matchups. And you have great route runners. You have guys that can get open and uncover quickly. And if pressure comes, Josh Allen should have plenty of answers. And it would be a, a great wrinkle and evolution of the offense. You know, last year, we expected the Bills to run a lot of 11 personnel. That was never going to be a mystery. But the wrinkle that Dable added was the 10 personnel. Well, maybe 01 personnel is the next wrinkle, the next point of evolution for the offense to stay ahead of the curve. I mean, an underrated talking point about the Bills this year is that all these coaches have now had an entire offseason to dig into this Bills tape and figure out what they're going to do this year. So what is Brian Dable going to do to stay ahead of the curve? And I, I like this idea. I think it meshes well with what we've seen Josh Allen do and where he's been successful. So go empty, give yourself some answers built in, and uh, take advantage of your skill sets. I think this is a great wrinkle. This excites me more than 12 personnel, to be honest with you. So predictively, I have no idea. Last year, somebody said, do you think the Bills could run more 10 personnel? And I was like, I don't know. I don't think they will. They didn't really do it last year. And in hindsight, that was me being short-sighted. I'm open to this as a possibility, and I hope it comes true. Apex says, I have heard a lot about the 2020 run scheme and how the fans feel the Bills shouldn't have changed to a zone run offense. I feel there can be an argument made to make the switch to a zone concept actually helped Josh Allen in the passing game as when in the zone scheme, the audible line calls are much easier than when in other schemes. Do you feel this is an overlooked aspect or am I way off base in my thinking? No, I don't think you're off base, and I think this is a good point that I haven't previously considered. You're right. It's easier to switch the direction of a zone run than gap-style runs. There, there's less moving parts. I think it's a lot easier. You can get to the line of scrimmage and evaluate the defensive front and how they're lined up and understand where you can best run the football and make those switches much easier. So this isn't something that I thought of, but I think it's a good point. Now, the adverse part of it is you had an offensive line that was not necessarily ready to make this switch. You know, they didn't gel. They didn't have time with the dynamics of last year's offseason to make this transition into a more complicated run scheme. So I think that's probably where you took the biggest hit. And obviously you couldn't predict those injuries, but that didn't help at all. Now, I will say another layer to this is that the zone run scheme probably helps you in the passing game when you want to move the pocket as well. So with you asking this question, it's forced me to think about this a little bit more. And I do think whether it is with the audibles or the idea of moving the pocket, there are some real benefits to going towards a zone run scheme. Did you guys know that Built Bar has so many amazing flavors? 
They are coconut, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, cookies and cream, orange, salted caramel, and strawberry. These things are delicious, and not only are they the best-tasting protein bars on the planet, they're healthy too. Check out the macros. They have 17 to 18 grams of protein. Calories range from 130 to 180, only 4 to 5 grams of sugar, and only 4 to 5 grams of net carbs. And look, if you don't know which box to try, you can get a mixed box where you'll get two of each of the nine flavors so you can sample them all. So check them out. I got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com, use our promo code LOCKED15, and it'll get you 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. The next one today comes from Sean, who says, Hey, Joe, hope all is well. With training camp set to start shortly, what do you think the final roster breakdown should and will look like? I keep hearing people talk about not having enough spots for the players at certain positions, but this is how I would break down the roster. And he has uh, 25 players on offense, 25 players on defense, the three specialists. The breakdown is three quarterbacks, eight offensive linemen, three tight ends, four running backs, seven wide receivers, 10 D-line, 10 defensive backs, and five linebackers. So as far as what I think will happen, I don't think that the Bills are going to keep seven wide receivers. They never do, and I don't think they're going to do it this year. That frees up a spot, which I think will go to the offensive line. I don't think they're keeping eight offensive linemen. I think it'll definitely be nine. Then you have the three-quarterback thing, which usually under McDermott, they've kept two. I'm not sure if they're going to do the COVID quarantine quarterback again this year, so that variable makes that difficult, but we'll leave it at three for now. On defense, I think they'll keep six linebackers and nine defensive backs, so I think it'll be five corners, four safeties. I do agree with you on 10 defensive linemen, but then they will keep a sixth linebacker in my opinion, and then, of course, the three special teams players. Charlie says, hey, Joe, I have a question for you on herd mentality. I noted that you said on Monday's show that Addison had a drop-off against the run game last year, going into 2021 based on all the options we have at defensive end. Who would your starting defensive ends be against the run? Will we see younger guys take on that role? If so, which two of them do you expect that to be? So if I were going to pick my starting players in terms of early downs downs that I think the other team was going to run the football. I would have Jerry Hughes and Carlos Basham on the field. I think those are the two best run defenders at defensive end that the Bills have. Um, predictively, I don't know if that would be the case. Uh, maybe they would want Epinesa in Basham. You know, Epinesa is a player that has all the characteristics to be a very, very good run defender. But one thing that I noticed from watching him at Iowa and last year with the Bills is that he's not a very good processor against the run. So he has length and power at the point of attack. He has good shed skills, all that type of stuff. But if you can't key and diagnose, if you can't understand when your blocker is trying to reach you or if they're trying to down block or if they leave and you know go somewhere else that a puller is coming, like those principles, I don't think he necessarily reads quickly or responds too quickly enough. So if he can make a jump there, I think Epinesa could be a good run defender, but the mental side of it is something that concerns me. Um, and maybe I would play some Greg Rousseau, but I would want him as a strong side player where he's lining up mostly over over tight ends and um, is not you know that base end, five technique over 
an offensive tackle. I think he'll have much more success on the strong side. So that's what I think will happen predictively. It's more the the second part of it. But, I mean, this is hard to, to peg because maybe they do play Hughes and Addison on early downs. I, I don't know. I mean, they've got options, and, and that makes it fun. Chris says, some of your recent pods had me thinking back to when the Bills hired Sean McDermott in 2017 and the other coaches hired that year, Doug Marone, Vance Joseph, Anthony Lynn, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, and of course, Sean McDermott. Obviously, Joseph, Marone, and Lynn didn't work out, but McDermott, McVay, and Shanahan have all become very highly respected. My first question is, how would you rank these six coaches? I was also curious how this coaching class compares to that of other years. It seemed that this would have been a very good crop of coaches, but I didn't know if there were any other years that were better. All right, so your first question is, how would I rank the 17 coaching class? My top three is obviously the ones that you outlined that have been successful with McVay 1, McDermott 2, and Shanahan 3. Um, the reason I have McVay ahead of McDermott is because McVay has been a little bit more consistent. You know, there's no 6 and 10 on McVay's resume. I mean, the, his worst season was 9 and 7. He won playoff games in multiple seasons, which is impressive to me where McDermott had last year 13 and 3 and obviously won two playoff games, but there hasn't been another year where he was able to win in the playoffs. So, that's something that I think, you know, favors McVay. He's got a better record to this point. Um, so I'll, I'll put McVay at one, McDermott two, Shanahan at three. And it's interesting, McVay and Shanahan, they've both been to the Super Bowl. And so that matters to me a lot when I think about stacking these guys up. But, you know, for Shanahan's Super Bowl season that he had, I mean, the guys really had some bad years, you know, some really poor records in there. So I think he's a good coach. I like his offensive mindset. I like the way he talks. I like the way he communicates. But let's not pretend like this guy has been blowing out of the water year in and year out. I mean, he's had some bad seasons. And I know that injuries are part of it, but, I mean, that's that's not an, an excuse that carries a lot of weight. Like, I know we know injuries matter, but when you look over the course of a head coach's tenure, you're not going to think about that. In 10 years, when we look back at the 49ers and them having some dreadful seasons, we're not going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember they had a lot of guys injured. No, it's going to be like, Oh my God, he went five and eleven in six and ten. Like that's what we're gonna say. Um, and then for the bottom three, I mean, you have Lynn, Joseph, and Marone. Oh gosh, uh, Lynn is four, Joseph five, and, and Marone six. But those bottom three, I mean, those guys were kind of bad. As for this crop of coaches, I mean, you got some you got some guys that I really like as first year head coaches this year. Uh, mainly Brandon Staley, who's with the Chargers. Robert Sala with the Jets and Arthur Smith with the Falcons. I'm pretty low on Nick Sirianni who went over to the Eagles and I think the Eagles are a complete dumpster fire of an organization with Howie Roseman and his leadership. Um, not a lot of good things happening there. There's not a lot of respect for Howie Roseman from the people that I know in the league. And so I think they got a Howie Roseman problem and I don't think that the Eagles are going to find success until he's no longer part of the equation. And to me, them settling on a guy like Sirianni, who's really not ready to be an NFL head coach, speaks to that situation where that's the type of talent that they can attract to be their head coach. So I'm not high on that situation. David Coley is highly respected, but 
what excitement does he bring as a head coach for the Houston Texans? I think just like Philadelphia, Houston is a complete dumpster fire. And so that's the type of coaching talent that they can attract. It's pretty sad. I mean, David Coley, you hate it for him because he's been a good coach in the NFL for a long time. A lot of respect out there for him, but he's an older guy in, in a situation where, I mean, that roster is just about as bad as it gets. Urban Meyer as a first-year coach in Jacksonville, I mean, his resume in college speaks for itself. Now, I'm not super high on Urban Meyer because I feel like he gets to places, wins, but I'm not sure the process in which he wins, at least at the college level, in terms of maybe some shady recruiting tactics, um, they don't sit well with me. And that's why I think he's run every chance along the way. Right when you feel like the pot's going to you know, spill over, he you know, has a health condition that forces him to resign. And he just keeps quitting. I don't know. Like He makes me nervous. And then Dan Campbell in Detroit, I hope it works out because that guy's a ton of fun. I mean, I love his quotes. I love his attitude. I love his energy. And um, I think he's the right coach at the right time for them where I'm not sure he's going to make them a consistent winner. But for them to get to respectability, for them to be a tough team, for them to usher in, I think, that next wave, I think Dan Campbell is going to play an instrumental part in that. I'm not sure he's going to be the coach that gets them over the hump, but I think he's a a coach that can get them stable. And um, I think that's what Detroit needs after somehow rolling with Matt Patricia after Jim Caldwell was like one of the best coaches they've ever had in franchise history. So um, that's some of my thoughts, but you know, kind of the cream of the crop this year, Brandon Staley, Robert Sala, Arthur Smith in my mind. CS says, among the Bills podcasting community, you are far and away one of Dawson Knox's biggest supporters, and I very much hope he ends up being a huge success with the Bills, if only to give us a solid answer at tight end and possibly put an end to the endless Ertz to Buffalo rumors. However, he has his problems, namely drops, and the tight end position is not an easy one to master. That being said, it feels like the Bills could have solved a number of their line problems if we had held on to Wyatt Teller, who had a huge step up once leaving the Bills. Is there any portion of your thinking that the front office thought process is that we don't want to lose out on such a player again? Now, let me talk about Dawson Knox's drop issues. They are a problem, but he cut his drop rate in half last year. Cut it in half. His drop rate was lower than Gabe Davis last year. So he's he's working on that. But, um, you know, I can't say for sure that the Wyatt Teller situation is something that Brandon Bean thinks a lot about and it, it is affecting his personnel decisions right now. But I do think that every team, when they decide to move on from a player, whether that's a trade or they cut a guy or they don't re-sign a player, that it's a consideration that they're concerned that player can go somewhere else and be really good. So I think that weighs heavily on the mind at all times for NFL general managers. And, you know, Wyatt Teller was one of the best guards in the NFL last year. But at the time of the deal, nobody batted an eye at at the move, right? Like most people thought Wyatt Teller wasn't going to make that team. And so for Buffalo to recoup a couple of draft picks for him, it seemed like a good deal at the time. And obviously he goes to Cleveland where the offensive line talent is outstanding. I mean, that that group is the best in the NFL. No, no team in the NFL has a better offensive line than Cleveland. 
And Bill Callahan's the offensive line coach who's the best offensive line coach in the NFL. So you want to talk about the perfect storm for Wyatt Teller to go and be the best version of himself and develop. It was there. I don't know if he would have stayed in Buffalo if this would have happened. So in hindsight, Bean didn't win that deal. But at the time, nobody really questioned it. So there's that. But yeah, whether it's the conversation we had about Tremaine Edmonds yesterday or kind of introducing Dawson Knox into this right now, I'd be real nervous that those players, if they were let go or had the opportunity to leave or be traded or whatever, if they if they went to another team that they would become outstanding players and you'd wonder, what if? What if we would have kept them? So I do think that at least, that idea is on the mind of all general managers. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. Tomorrow, we tackle the tough questions when it comes to the Bills' secondary. So if you have questions about the corners or safeties, please send them in. Joe at thedraftnetwork.com is the email. I want to have a good conversation about the secondary tomorrow. So I need your questions for that to happen. So whatever's weighing on your mind, please send it in. Again, joe at thedraftnetwork.com. Two more podcasts coming your way this week. Again, tackling the tough questions with the Bills' secondary tomorrow. Friday will be a unique concept, so don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.